What I've learned along the way is how absolutely satisfying and how gratifying an experience it is to be involved in this and how our predecessors must have felt in the 30s when they turned those lights on. Welcome to episode 358 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In early 2018, the Central Virginia Electric Cooperative announced details of their plan to deploy fiber to the home to members across their service area. Beginning with the pilot project, they plan to bring high-quality Internet access to members in some of the least connected areas of the state. This week, Christopher talks with Gary Wood and Melissa Gay from the co-op. Gary and Melissa describe why CVEC decided to take on the project and what Internet access is like in the region. They discuss the reason why this project makes sense, including the multiple uses for the fiber that will benefit both Internet access subscribers and electric customers. During the conversation, we get to hear about the process that led to the decision to deploy fiber to this region of Virginia, how the cooperative is funding the project, their marketing techniques, and the lessons learned from taking on the Firefly Broadband Project. You can learn more about the CVEC project at muninetworks.org and by visiting the cooperative's update page, mycvec.com slash community slash broadband. Now let's learn about the Firefly Broadband Project from the Central Virginia Electric Cooperative with Gary Wood and Melissa Gay. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis. Today I'm talking to two people from Virginia who come with very high recommendations from John Chambers, a a frequent guest. Um, We're going to introduce you first to Gary Wood, the president and CEO of the Central Virginia Electric Cooperative. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Looking forward to talking today. Great. And we also have Melissa Gay, the Communications and Member Services Manager for CVEC uh, as well. Welcome back, or welcome to the show, I should say. Thank you. So let me start by asking uh, you, Gary, um, maybe just tell us a little bit about the area. What is Central Virginia? Central Virginia's uh, service territory for our electric co-op uh, covers the area between Charlottesville and Lynchburg, uh, on the western side of our service area, it uh, borders up along the Blue Ridge Mountains. We go up to the uh, Blue Ridge Parkway and the Appalachian Trail and some mountainous areas. And then it runs all the way down to uh, about 30 miles west of Richmond, the capital of Virginia. Um, we have a mix of, of uh, that mountainous terrain to the west and uh, then some flatlands and down to uh, the James River which is uh, the main river in that uh, courses through Virginia. Uh, so we have some lower areas al- along there. It's mostly um, wooded and farming territory in the rural areas. The places we serve are fairly sparsely populated outside of the uh, cities of Charlottesville and Lynchburg and around a few uh, towns, smaller towns in the rural counties. We touch into about 14 different counties in Virginia. Um, but it's a, a pretty rustic and rural area, beautiful place to visit, and uh, hope some of your listeners will have a chance to come visit us sometime. Tell me, are you, uh, Melissa, are you from the area? I sure am. Uh, born and raised in Amherst County, um, which is a neighboring county for our headquarters here at Central Virginia Electric Cooperative. We're headquartered in Nelson County. Great. And, and Gary, are you also uh, native to the area? I am. I grew up about uh, 15 minutes from our headquarters um, moved away for a while at college and after uh, college when I was first married and 
uh, then found my way back and have been back in the area now for about 30 years. So uh, it's a very familiar place for me. That's great. I mean, it, it'll um, inform some of this discussion to know that you have such an, an attachment to the area, um, both of you, given that uh, you're taking on a, a really important task, a, you know, investment for generations. Uh, we'll be talking about the, the fiber network y'all are building. So I guess let me start with, with you, Melissa, and just ask you, um, you know, where did this, uh, this idea of a, of a fiber network that uh, your cooperative would run, where did that come from? Well, the cooperative began to explore this for its internal use, for the electric grid use. Um, we need that fiber to improve our security, security at our substations, so we can have a video surveillance of those areas, particularly with cybersecurity concerns on the rise um, for any utility in the nation. We saw a need for that, and our uh, board of directors certainly has approved and agreed with the need for that, as well as the the need to improve our reliability, Um, being able to uh, use reclosers and, and things that will improve the response time for eliminating outages or closing outages. We know that that will be important. And as everybody is moving into to smart TVs and smart thermostats, and everything is smart these days, uh, we will find that we, the electric company, can work with our members to regulate their energy use and save them money so that they're not using the thermostat at times when they're not home, but it's a peak load uh, for a, another segment of our member population. And so we can work to pull that demand back when we need and give it to them when they need. It's a win-win situation. They would save the money and we could regulate our load a little more closely. So it started there. Um, we, we knew that we would benefit from fiber, which would link all of our substations together. A lot of other cooperatives call that a ring, so that you have a continuous loop of fiber all around your system. So you can do the surveillance at your substations and link all of your members in. Um, And then, of course, the other huge piece of this is our member need. We're looking at our communities where our our youth uh, don't have access to the Internet like their um, peers in larger cities across the nation. And even within our own counties, we're seeing the inequality of the availability of broadband from just one side of the county to the other. So those students are in churches and in McDonald's parking lots and go into friends' houses and staying at school later to do their homework, Um, whereas other students are at the comfort of their home and, you know, can really settle in and concentrate on their studies. And we see that all the way through the college generation and adults or people who want to do online business, online courses, um, work at home. So we knew that the need Uh, We know the need is there for our members, and we really are at a deficit and a disadvantage in the rural corners of our um, service territory. Very similar to the 1930s when um, the the bigger utilities didn't want to come and provide that power here in the rural areas, we're finding that it's it's not a very cost-effective model for larger um, Internet service providers to come into these small pockets and provide the internet. Yeah, we've we uh, we've heard that many times. I think those the same dynamic happening in a, in a lot of different places because, um, well, 
<laughs> First of all, it's predictable. Um, I think we saw, a lot of us saw this coming, and just based on history, as you noted, from the, the 30s. Um, Gary, I, I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about um, Internet access a, across your electric footprint. Um, kind of, you know, I, I definitely get a sense that it's um, it's not what you wanted it to be. That's why you're investing significantly. But but what what is it like um, in terms of the access? Is there is there anything, or is it just that there's um, uh, inadequate? It's certainly inadequate. Uh, there are areas where there are uh, no options whatsoever, but uh, in other areas, uh, there's cell phone coverage that um, can meet some needs. Uh, a lot of times that has data caps. The uh, cell phone towers are, are not uh, throughout the area, so sometimes it's hard to get a good signal depending on where your home is. Um, the DSL service from the incumbent uh, telephone companies are only available in, in a few of the areas around the counties uh, where it is available. It's not available very far from their switch, uh, and it's uh, not a reliable signal. Where they do have it, it tends to be oversubscribed, so during peak times, the speeds are a little slow. We do have satellite availability, but in the mountains here and with the trees, not all of our members want to cut down their trees to get the satellite signal. <laughs> I should uh, say not. I mean, maybe if, exactly. it, was, if it was decent. <laughs> That's right. And then the, the problem, if you get it, is uh, the data caps on that and the expense. Uh, and again, it uh, tends to slow at peak times. Um, there's, I think out of our 38,000 accounts, about 900 of them had access to fiber when we looked at the start of this project. Um, so it's a very limited uh area that has true high speed. Um, there are a few wireless providers, but in the terrain we have, that's a, a difficult technology to uh, to keep the signal reliable. Uh, it has weather problems in addition to the terrain and the trees. And the areas that uh, they have subscriptions, they tend to oversubscribe also and um, be a little slower at peak times. Uh, this has been a problem for a while. Our, our co-op goes back uh, 1997, even in dial-up days. Um, we didn't have local dial-up options here when uh, that was the technology that was used to be online. And our co-op started a dial-up internet service and ran it for a number of years until uh, a few other options uh, came around. And we tried broadband over power line for a while because uh, speeds had moved up a little bit beyond dial-up and, and no one had any options. And uh, we tried a third party with that for a while. We've tried reaching out to other folks to ask uh, incumbent providers if they would move on to our lines, um, whether it's a, a cable provider in the area or a telephone provider, and offer to allow them to attach to our poles without charging them annual fees if they would just provide service to everybody. And we haven't found any takers because it's, uh, it, it's tough to make the numbers work for a lot of those folks to give them the returns they want. So the result is we have an area that um, has very limited, I, I would say uh, probably less than 10% of our customers have anything that would resemble true high speed, uh, anything around 25 megabit or even above 10 megabit uh, service that's reliable and affordable. 
when you were trying to figure out how to solve that, I, I'm I'm curious how um, you know if you originally thought that that fiber was feasible, or if you just evaluated all your different options. Like, uh, how did you go about deciding on uh, the the plan to roll out this network? Well, it's it's interesting that at the start of this uh, conversation, you mentioned that uh, uh, John Chambers had talked about Central Virginia because John Chambers was uh, part of what. Uh, opened our eyes to the potential of uh, building fiber. We had assumed it would be too expensive. And uh, uh, I was at a conference that uh, John spoke at and and talked about some other co-ops and uh, some areas similar to ours uh, where the economics had had worked and um, they had built out systems. From his talk, I came back, discussed it with our staff, and we decided to engage uh, Connexon and do a feasibility study just to see, to either prove to us that we we couldn't afford the fiber or to understand what it would take to put it in. And uh, that was early, probably 2017 in that time frame that we did the feasibility study. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it came back and showed that it was very marginally acceptable. Uh, when we first looked at it, there was seven years before our uh, subsidiary would get to a uh, positive cash flow on an annual basis. And it was year 11 before we paid off those first years of losses and kind of got to a simple break even. Our board gave us the go-ahead as a staff to start the first year as a pilot project and uh, serve as a proof of concept that we could uh, meet the the costs and revenues in the uh, feasibility study, but also to look for ways to drive the cost down further and to bring in some other revenues, if we could, uh, from outside sources to help uh, strengthen the business case for the fiber build-out. Great. Melissa, do you want to just give us a sense of what the plan is right now? So we have uh, 27 substations, and as Gary mentioned, we uh, serve parts of 14 counties and uh, 37-plus thousand members, and our plan is to pass each and every one of those homes um, with the option for fiber-to-the-home gigabit speed service uh, within a five-year time frame. So that requires us to have contractors on the ground to build at 15 to 20 miles of construction a week um, so that we can hit our target. Um, That includes the make-ready engineering process where they stake out each of those areas and the design is done and make-ready construction where they actually change out the poles if they need to be taller and move the transformers around. We have to put in the anchors to make sure that Um, those poles can hold that additional weight, so we put in the extra anchors. Um, And then the the final piece of that is the actual fiber construction, where you see, you know, they're putting the the strand on and lashing the fiber on, and then the splicing, and then the piece of getting it into the home and finally lighting up (laughs) all of these homes across our service territory. Well, did I did I jump a step then? Because Gary, I, I sort of jumped in, and um, you were talking about getting the cost down. Was there an interim step that I missed there? We did start that first pilot year. We've had uh, good success as far as being able to show that we can keep the costs in line, uh, close to where the feasibility study uh, showed they could be, and we've found a significant 
amount of support from outside through various subsidies, incentives, grants, uh, the Connect America Fund, uh, some state grants, and then uh, local county incentives uh, so that together we've offset a, a big part of that of the cost, capital cost, and some of the first year's operating losses that we would have had if we did not have those outside uh, dollars coming in. I mean, it's it's amazing to me, and I and I love hearing that. I mean, the the fact that you, um, I think you won in the Connect America Fund auction. You were successful in that, right? That's the part of the Connect America Fund that you tapped into. Absolutely, we were very fortunate in the Connect America Fund, and uh, Connexon was very helpful. Uh, to us because they were very familiar with the uh, bidding process and um, they did some work to help uh, co-ops become qualified uh, bidders in that auction. Our co-op was able to get $28.6 million over the next 10 years in award from that auction, and that's going to certainly help uh, strengthen the business case for our build-out. Now, Melissa, you identified and very well, I think, <laughs> sort of an understated way, the enormity of the challenge. Um, but I, I am curious something. It's a little bit of an off-the-wall question. And and, I, and that is, was the hardest part of this picking a name for the fiber subsidiary? Oh, that was the most fun. It, it, <laughs> was, it was very hard. Um, certainly, we had some great options on the table. Uh, we have a partner um, in creation and design with this, aside from our own management team and even input from our employees, um, the Central Virginia Electric Cooperative employees and the board. Uh, the Blue Ridge Design Group in Charlottesville uh, partnered with us, and they listened uh, to all of the ideas of the project and the scope, and um, you know they, they've got that creative flair, of course. Uh, they gave us several options, and we also had suggestions from our employees. We put out a survey and we asked and we had one final suggestion from employees and then one that had come from the pool from the Blue Ridge group. So we vetted those ideas. We vetted um, logos for each of those and and, um, all of the supporting colors and and all of the design pieces for um, each of those. And then we put that to a vote. We went out to our member advisory council members and let them see each of those and and give their input. It was a fun process, probably one of my favorite things um, from the startup, since I don't do design and and don't pick substations and also don't do dollars, and I'm in the communication side. So I'd have to say this has been one of the most exhilarating experiences (laughs) to see the firefly come to life and and think about how it's so representative of our beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, we do have fireflies here uh, in the summer. Our children run around and catch them um, and put them in jars and let them light up. So it's a very meaningful name for us and sort of the the double meaning there of, of lighting up all of these households with fiber um, across our service territory. Yeah, I, I like that. Although uh, growing up in Pennsylvania, I have to say that um, I, I always knew them as lightning bugs before I yeah. learned the term firefly. <laughs> well, and we like that term too. And we're counting on the fact that our members uh, know that they're lightning bugs. We um, play on that with lightning fast internet. Um, nice. So we, we sort of like that being an electric company and often something, an electric bolt, it looks very similar to lightning. So you can kind of tie it all in together when you're doing your design and marketing piece. 
And so, like, Gary, let me ask you first, Gary, but I'd love to, to get a reaction from Melissa as well. Um, but uh, what, have there been any interesting surprises along the way uh, that, that you can share with us? Any you know, uh, insights that um, you now have that you may not have expected a few years ago? Well, we could do a whole separate podcast just on, <laughs> on the things we have learned. Sure. Um, and there's so many. We have learned uh, a lot of new uh, things about the way that uh, fiber goes together. We've learned about the way the state laws uh, require you to work in Virginia uh, with a subsidiary and, and uh, have it set up to sell Internet. Uh, we've learned what some of our local folks think in a very positive way about the co-op and how there are people who, even if they have another service, they love their co-op so much that they want to switch to anything that we're providing. We've learned about how our employees think about our projects when we start out, and we learned how a lot of them have really stepped up to the plate at a really busy time to help us out. Uh, there's just There are a lot of positives out of it. There's a few little funny stories that may be in there. I'll have to be careful about which ones are uh, suitable for a podcast that <laughs> sure. I can tell. But right. Melissa, maybe you want to take off a little bit. Well, the extended okay. version later. <laughs> I, I would I would echo everything that Gary said, and you know I I thought as he was talking the the county support. Um, I have had an opportunity in my role now to go and accompany Gary to some of these meetings and meet these county leaders. And to see that they're in this just as, as well as we are. You know, their residents are are begging, crying, demanding for this internet. I mean, this is this is very this is you know life or death. It seems to some of these folks that they cannot get it, and mm-hmm. they're just feeling so cut off and so alienated. And I feel so satisfied when I walk out of those doors and I can say okay, you know, we serve more than half of this county. And therefore, when when this project concludes, Central Virginia Electric Cooperative and Firefly are going to offer half of this whole county the opportunity to get gigabit speed internet for $79.99 with no data caps, no contract, and bringing a wholesome product to, to our members. And so for me, what I've learned along the way is how absolutely satisfying and how gratifying an experience it is to be involved in this and how our predecessors must have felt in the 30s when they turned those lights on. You know, I get calls every day from members who say, oh, please, Melissa, tell me you're coming. I have one who's uh, promised to bribe me with elderberry syrup. <laughs> send to my office fresh off of her farm and you have to make sure you're revisiting that conflict of interest policy i think (laughs) exactly exactly but i get those calls all the time you know and they're telling me just how this is going to be such a life-changing experience for them and they tell me about you know how they've wanted to pursue their degree their first degree or you know even their second degree if they want to do masters or, or beyond and how they've wanted to work from home and they're renting a space, you know, right in town so that they can get the Internet, so that they can live their dream and live where they want to live, but they have to still commute within their own town to a place that has that Internet and how I'm going to change their lives and we're going to save them money. And, you know, their kids won't move back here because they don't have the Internet. So they're staying in the rural areas and their families are split and, so for me, the biggest surprise was just how satisfying it would be 
and I knew it would have been, I knew it would be impactful, but I don't think I truly ever grasped the human element of this, the real piece of the the member centric um, goal here of getting internet into those homes. So I have I have loved that and the partnership. The members have offered to lobby on the hill. They want to lobby to their local representatives. They want to write letters and really get involved in in you know deciding their fate here for that. And that has been exciting as well as just partnering and and meeting more of our politicians and our local representatives and and helping them to see what we're doing and that we're part of the solution. Gary, did you want to share any of those stories? One just set of stories is around the uh, access to members' property. And when you get out in rural areas, uh, people are very protectful of their uh, privacy and of their property, and there are times where it's difficult for the electric co-op to plan to be online just to upgrade uh, pole lines because people are concerned about us driving through when there are co- crops in the ground, or they're concerned about us having access and and who it is that will be behind their house and in their field. And we know that there are a few of those members out on our lines. We've had several of them meet the uh, contractors as they're first out working on the fiber project. Uh, one of them met them at a gate that was locked and the uh, crews were trying to figure out how to get through. And he, he came up to him and said, the gate's locked and it'll stay locked and you won't come on my land. I don't allow co-op people uh, here. And he had a conflict uh, that went back several years where he thought he hadn't been treated fairly mm-hmm. um, related to a billing. And uh, he, in fact, used my name and said, you you can call Mr. Wood and tell him that once he resolves my issue and my money is returned, it was about $85 he thought he was owed. He said, then we can talk about whether you, you get here. So uh, the next day, one of our employees went by and I, I talked to him and they they went by and told him that we understood his, his issues and we wouldn't need to get on his property because he would have been the only one we would have served off of that fiber and that uh, we didn't want to bother him. We wouldn't build the fiber. And, and he said, wait, wait a minute, you were coming on to build the, is this the internet service? <laughs> and uh, he said, tell, tell the crews to be out there tomorrow morning. I'll have the gate open and coffee waiting for him. <laughs> so it, it kind of changed his view of the co-op again. And uh, we had another gentleman who uh, showed up when the, uh, there was some underground work going in on his job. And he showed up and, and didn't stop to hear about what it was for and uh, asked the guy to leave the property immediately. He was very upset that they had uh, come in and not first knocked on his door and scheduled everything with him. And he was the same way the, the day after when he heard that it was for the fiber. He called back and said, tell that crew to come back over <laughs> and let's keep, keep this thing moving. So uh, it, it's such an important service for these folks that, that people who otherwise are, are really careful and, and standoffish about who is on their property are waving folks in, just saying, please, let, let's get here and get started. It, uh, that, that tells me something about the desire for, for that service. And, and there's so many different reasons for it, for the education side, uh, certainly for entertainment purposes, but for uh, telemedicine, um, whether that is people who just want to use uh, some of the teledoc type applications on their phones, they don't have good cell phone coverage, and if they have Wi-Fi, they can use a cell phone and go online and have a doctor uh, prescribe medicine for them without having to go out to a 
clinic that may be 30 miles away and sit in a waiting room with other sick people. Just a, a lot of different purposes. Everyone has been welcoming to us. Uh, we, we've done about 700 miles of construction on Make Ready. We're a little behind that as far as the total fiber because of the order everything has to be built in. But we've had 700 miles that we've had uh, trucks on doing work preparing for the fiber to come after them. And from that, we've had one consumer, one member who has uh, asked us not to be on his property. So that that's a pretty incredible number in today's world. Those are those are really interesting stories. I actually hadn't heard that level of, of interest before. I've um, there's one municipal utility in Tennessee that had said that um, they were so well liked in providing this service that um, that uh, sometimes their uh, workers would be greeted uh, with offers of a of a beer from the homeowner, which uh, they wanted to discourage. <laughs> yes. So, um, yes, uh, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if some of our contractors haven't had some offers. I haven't heard all of them, but. Uh, <laughs> And that's not one you may, surprise me. they may not tell you about that one. So uh, there's a lot of uh, really good individual stories that, that you and Melissa have shared, but I'm curious about the overall take rate that you're seeing in areas, um, you know, for instance, the pilot area. What did you see um, in terms of the, the total amount of interest? Well, if we look at our first substation, we had essentially three circuits out of the substation. Um, two of those had no incumbent providers with any real options. Uh, just the wireless and the, the satellite and, and maybe a little bit of cell phone use. On the third circuit, there was uh, an area where there was a little more high speed, a little bit of cable availability. Uh, so if you take the two circuits that had no other existing options, we're at 50% on initial signups, which is um, well in ex- excess of the 35% our feasibility study assumed for the first two years. Okay. So that that was a just a really good take rate for the first time through. When you consider a lot of these folks, we had people who'd never had any type of internet service mm-hmm. um, because they just didn't have anything available. Uh, and we still have some who are trying to figure out what do you do when you have broadband? You invite what, the grandkids How do over. I use it? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Even, uh, and even it, it's what's an email? How how can can you help me set up an email? Right. Okay. I understand. I need the the internet, but now how do I use it? We were very happy with that. On in the area where we had a competitor who was already there, we're um, about thirty five or thirty six percent. So we still did very well. We met our goal for the areas without competitors in the areas where we did have competitors. And we had assumed that we'd have a lower take rate in, in the areas where, where there were already people who had options. Um, but there's, there's a lot of demand. We're still seeing uh, signups in that area, even though we've gotten beyond that initial build out. And now we'll go back and uh, put people in and, and uh, connect people from uh, a couple of weeks at a time. We'll go down and, and put a little group on together and uh, people are still signing up. We expect that to continue on for, for really for years, adding another two to three or four on a circuit per week. Yeah, but one of the things that, that we see is that uh, there's a continual growth, and that's fueled in part by the fact that um, you probably will see very little churn. You won't have hardly any disconnects. So the word of mouth will get around. And, and... Yeah, as of uh, today, we started people online last year uh, in December. And I am not aware of a single uh, disconnect. 
Yeah, that's impressive. And especially since you're facing competition in some of those, often you'll see a real price war right. effort. But, uh, but you know, with the reputation that your co-op has, you probably won't have to worry too much. Right. Yeah, I, I'm sure going forward we'll see some, but it's just, it has surprised us. We anticipated that we would have good demand and a lot of interest. It surprised us that it's been a little better and that uh, it's been as consistent across the uh, board. When we moved to our second area that we were building in, there was some fiber that the county had built in a portion of that area. Right. That'd be Nelson County, I'm guessing, right? In Nelson County, yeah. And yet we are still seeing uh, take rates over 30% in areas where members have had options to connect to fiber. Were you going to buy the Nelson County network? Well, uh, we went to the local counties and asked them to consider incentive packages for us. And as we talked to the different counties, uh, some of them had different ways to approach it. Nelson County offered, instead of giving us a financial incentive, they offered to transfer at no cost the uh, 70-plus miles of fiber that they had built um, over the last eight years or so. Uh, so we accepted that. Uh, it is. It has been built with grant money uh, for the most part, so there, it comes with no debt. It does have to be operated as open access network, a portion of it that was built with grant dollars, because that was one of the requirements of the grant, and we'll have to um, operate as open access for about another 10 years uh, to meet the grant requirements, and, and then we'll have the fiber after that to do with as we please. That's a little quirk that's just special to Nelson County, and it was their way of offering us an incentive to uh, to build out in all of the electric co-op area and to reach just beyond the co-op area where we can to extend service to others. It's a, it's a fascinating story, and I'm, I'm thrilled because stories like this are, are what's going to um, bring the connectivity we need to everyone in the country. Um, as we're wrapping up, let me ask you, Melissa, is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about? I would echo Gary's sentiment for all of the partnership with our employees across the cooperative and just the the taking on a subsidiary, reopening our subsidiary and introducing, you know, a whole different set of employees, um, yet sharing the member base. And I, I think that, you know, non-regulated states don't share in that experience, but being in Virginia and not for an electric utility not to be able to offer the Internet. They can only offer electric service. Um, for states that are regulated, I would say that that was a new experience for us as well. CBEC has had a, a, a subsidiary in operation multiple times, but it, it didn't employ um, a whole different set of, of employees. And so that has been a unique um, experience for us and one that has really helped us to grow and, and bring on um, a, a whole new set of employees where it's. So for me, um, that has been a, a unique piece of this as well, is just um, dealing with, well, and introducing and, and embracing um, a new set of employees. And however, the customers are the same. So your electric customers mm-hmm. right now are also your internet customers. Um, so we're sharing those people and sharing experiences with those people um, and impacting two sides of their lives, electricity and internet. It's um, <laughs> I, I, I assume there's a it's like a trade-offs. Um, there's some benefits and negatives about having to to form the subsidiary. But I, I appreciate that you, you're looking at it as a as a um, you know a positive story. 
they're certainly making it happen uh, without those folks to sign up all and schedule all of the the services and they have a whole new billing you know that they have to take mm-hmm. on so yep. we certainly appreciate that that they are there mm-hmm. to take trouble calls and and question calls and so it has that has been a unique experience like i said for a regulated versus non versus a non-regulated state right uh, Gary, is there anything that any closing comments you wanted to share? The other uh, overarching feeling and uh, thoughts that I have about our start into this uh, whole project has been uh, how positive it's been for all the people that it's touched. Uh, certainly for the members who are getting broadband internet service, they're extremely happy. For the local politicians, uh, the, even at the, the elected officials at the state level and the federal level, they're struggling to find a solution to rural broadband. And they're embracing electric co-ops and seeing that uh, with our project and several others uh, in the state and a number of them across the nation, that electric co-ops are a big part of the solution for rural broadband um, that we know something about infrastructure in the rural areas and we can take on big projects that have very low margins in, in the out years and, um, and make them successful and that our members uh, or our employees um, have taken it on knowing that there's extra work, there's, there's um, more material moving through, that there are more contractors in the area, more phone calls coming in and embracing that because they see what it's doing to change people's lives and it it really has created a a good feeling that goes throughout the project Uh, people are more patient even though they're tense times um whether it's with members or with our employees or with our contractors and with the folks who are helping provide uh, some of the funding and support uh, VDOT, our local Department of Transportation, has been very helpful in trying to help us uh, make sure we get our permits timely uh, because they see the need. Everybody wants to be part of the project. They want to be part of the success story. And they want to be part of the solution to provide uh, rural broadband. It's a daunting task when you first um, take it on. It's a whole new business for us. But I feel like we've done it very successfully. We've had really good consultants. We've had really good contractors. And really across the board, everybody wants it to be a success, and they're all willing to play a part in it. Uh, so that's it's just been a really positive story for us. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I, I think um, I, I've kept you longer than I than I promised, but it's been a, a great discussion with a lot of a lot of interesting things that we haven't heard from from other projects that I would have thought were pretty similar. So, thank you for taking the time today. You're Absolutely, welcome. thank you, Chris. That was Melissa Gay and Gary Wood from the Central Virginia Electric Cooperative. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org/broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 358 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>